0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: For me, a great British castle is a fortress, a palace, a home and a symbol of power, majesty, and fear. For nearly a thousand years, castles have shaped Britain's famous landscape. These magnificent buildings have been home to some of the greatest heroes and villains in our national history, and many of them still stand proudly today, bursting with incredible stories of warfare, treachery, intrigue, passion and murder. Join me, Dan Jones, as I uncover the secrets behind six great British castles. This time I'm in Arundel, near Britain's south coast, a classic English castle whose comfort, elegance and grandeur was enjoyed and admired by Queen Victoria. But Arundel was originally built for war, and it survived more than its fair share of battles, brutality, and bloodshed. The story of Arundel Castle spans almost a 1,000 years, and throughout it all, the lesson for its owners has been the same. Choose the right side, and you get to keep all this. Choose the wrong one, and you die. (coughs) Arundel Castle dominates a hillside where the Sussex Downs roll towards the English Channel. It's half-medieval fortress, half-stately home, a place that has its own gatehouse and its own cricket ground. It even has a duke, the extremely prestigious Duke of Norfolk. It may seem odd that his family line have owned this castle for more than 800 years, even though it's not actually in Norfolk. But you see, he's not any old duke. He's also an Earl. Although we're in Sussex, Arundel Castle is the seat of the Duke of Norfolk, who's the first, or the most important, peer in the land. He also happens to be Earl of Arundel, the oldest earldom in the kingdom, so he's doubly important. In a few moments, Her Majesty would
2: arrive at the Palace of Westminster, awaited by the Earl Marshal the Duke of Norfolk and the Lord
3: Great Chamber.
1: Traditionally, the Duke of Norfolk was one of those who walked backwards in front of the Queen when she opened a new session of Parliament. He faced her to show loyalty and respect, but he had to watch his back to avoid tripping over a dozing lord. And actually, that pretty much sums up the history of this castle and of its owners. Loyalty. Who's on your side? Who's plotting against you? You need to watch your back because you never know who to trust. Today the Duke's own team is playing. This used to be his private cricket ground, until the 1970s when the Sussex County side started playing here too. It regularly hosts big charity and celebrity games. Even Prince Philip captained a side here in the 1950s. Arundel has always attracted people of power and influence don't let all this English reserve fool you, because underneath its serene exterior, Arundel Castle has one of the bloodiest and most dramatic histories of any castle in Britain. And it all begins more than 900 years ago, when England was conquered by a bunch of men who'd sooner have chopped your arm off than enjoyed a nice game of cricket. They were the Normans. The Normans were a powerful and warlike French aristocratic dynasty descended from Scandinavian pirates and they loved a bit of fighting, pillaging and conquering. In 1066, the Norman Lord William the Conqueror, also known as William the Bastard, landed his boats on the south coast of England, about 50 miles east of Arundel. He defeated the Saxon king Harold Godwinson at the Battle of Hastings and took the English crown. Then he set about conquering the whole realm. Arundel was right at the top of his list and it's easy to see why. The town of Arundel was perfectly situated. Fertile land, fresh water and easy to reach from the coast. A real jewel. And in 1067, the year after the Normans arrived, William the Conqueror gave this entire area to his friend and ally, Roger de Montgomery, one of the greatest lords in Normandy. And what had Montgomery done to deserve all this? Well, he'd stayed behind in Normandy, keeping the show running, while William was over here conquering. Even so, this was a spectacularly good reward. In fact, by the end of William the Conqueror's reign, Montgomery's fortune amounted to about 3% of the entire country's wealth. He was, if you like, a medieval Bill Gates. Montgomery needed to protect all of his valuable new land, so he did what the Normans did so very well. He built a castle, originally out of timber and surrounded by a huge defensive ditch. When the ditch was dug, the spoil was piled up to make this huge 100-foot mound, or mott. Then you stick your secure central building right on the top. That's what today we call the keep. A wooden castle on top of a hill may not sound impenetrable to us today, but back in the days before gunpowder, it was pretty formidable. Historian Mark Morris is a leading expert in Norman castles.
2: Why wooden? In the first instance, they're interested in speed. Remember, there's a few thousand Normans and two million disgruntled Anglo-Saxons. So you are in the midst of a hostile environment and you want to uh, rivet your power into place. So you build quickly. In the months that follow, start creating that great mound of earth behind us, the motte, with, again, a wooden tower on top. And this is a castle on a big scale. On the same kind of scale as windsor is there any part of the castle that still survives from roger of montgomery's time roger of montgomery is very very powerful he has several castles across england and into the welsh marches but as time wears on he clearly decides that arundel being right on the south coast near to normandy is one that he wants to invest in heavily and what he does here is he starts to invest in stone and the gatehouse behind you there The bottom part of it, the lower stories, that is late 11th century masonry. So people were laying that masonry in the time of Roger of Montgomery, in the time of William the Conqueror himself.
1: Norman castles like the one Roger of Montgomery was building here at Arundel were partly for protection, partly for intimidation. But the Normans were also very good at falling out with each other and the real problems came when they had to defend against other Normans. For almost two decades after the death of William the Conqueror, his sons had fought and squabbled over the English throne. In 1135, when his youngest son, King Henry I, died without a legitimate male heir, the problems got even worse. Soon, the entire country was on the brink of utter chaos. Before he died, Henry I commanded his barons to support the claim of his daughter, Matilda, to be England's first real queen, a monarch in her own right, and not just the wife of a king. But with Henry dead, the barons looked at each other and had a collective change of heart. Instead of supporting the claim of a woman, most changed their allegiance to Henry's nephew, Stephen of Blois. Ora pro peccatoribus nunc et in hora mortis nostri. Amen. In a scramble for the throne, Stephen managed to have himself crowned first. It was a power grab that would lead to a civil war that lasted for nearly 20 years. The country was ripped apart by two cousins battling for the crown, Stephen and Matilda. And one of the most important showdowns in that whole conflict took place here at Arundel Castle. The castle was owned by Matilda's stepmother, so it was a natural safe haven and the perfect place for Matilda to base her forces. All those English barons who decided that England ought to be ruled by a man had no idea who they were dealing with. With Stephen and his army on the march towards Arundel, the fate and future of England would be sealed right here at the castle. it's hard to imagine how somewhere as pretty as Arundel Castle could have such a dark and turbulent past. But nearly nine centuries ago, in 1139, it was a Norman fortress at the heart of a bitter power struggle between two cousins battling for the crown of England, Matilda and Stephen. This castle was protecting Matilda, the daughter of King Henry I and the heir to the English crown. Outside was the man who'd claimed that crown, Matilda's cousin, King Stephen, and he had with him enough men and firepower to besiege and maybe even to destroy the castle and everything inside it. As military tactics went, the art of the medieval siege was pretty simple. One side goes into their castle, closes the portcullis lifts the drawbridge and bolts the door the other side armed to the teeth camps up outside in the hope that those in the castle will succumb to thirst starvation or disease actual attacks were rare you risked losing too many men and those inside the castle had the advantage of height Solid battlements and later arrow loops and murder holes to pour boiling oil down on those trying to get in But here's the thing so far as we know a siege never actually began so what did happen? Put yourself in Matilda's position Outside is her cousin Stephen, with a large army and a bad attitude. He has more men than you, and your castle's mainly made of wood and not stone. So do you resist, or do you negotiate? Matilda's fate was uncertain, to say the least. And history's equally uncertain. All we do know is that there was a very bizarre conclusion stephen agreed to something completely unexpected and frankly quite hard to explain he decided to let her go stephen basically allowed matilda to escape and he gave her a guaranteed safe passage to bristol where she could meet up with her allies it's really hard to work out what stephen was thinking But at the end of it all, I think we just have to write this down as a major miscalculation. Stephen's leniency had dire consequences. Having been let go, Matilda wasn't just going to let her cousin keep the crown, she fought back. For almost two decades, the cousins battled it out in a vicious, bloody and drawn-out war known as the Anarchy. It left England a smouldering wreck. It devastated the countryside, destroyed communities and ruined lives. One chronicler said it was as if Christ and his saints were asleep. Matilda never became queen, but in 1153 the conflict was finally resolved when Stephen agreed to make Matilda's son his heir. He would become King Henry II, but it would take England and Arundel decades to recover from the war. The man who'd brokered the peace settlement between Stephen and Matilda was William d’Orbini, and he was rewarded by being made the very first Earl of Arundel, and later by being given Arundel Castle to keep. The Daubini family held the castle for over a hundred years until the 5th Earl of Arundel died without children. In 1243 the title and the castle passed to his nephew, John Fitzalan. The Fitzalans were the family who would make Arundel what it is today. In fact they've occupied it continuously ever since, give or take the occasional disagreement with the crown. This powerful family added the massive Barbican and its towers, a moat, drawbridge and portcullis. These heavy-duty walls and gates were not only for defence, but also allowed advertisement of the Fitzallans' wealth and status. No-one showed that better than the great 14th century Earl of Arundel, Richard Fitzalan. During his lifetime, Richard Fitzalan would be a soldier, A counsellor to the king, a clever financier, and one of the wealthiest men of the 14th century. He used his riches to transform Arundel Castle into one of the most spectacular buildings in England. And where did his money come from? Friendship and fighting. As a teenager, Richard Fitzalan became firm friends with a 14-year-old who just happened to be King Edward III of England. For 45 years, they embarked on a truly incredible adventure together. At the heart of it was a war with England's greatest enemy, France. Edward III was one of England's greatest warrior kings. Together, Edward and Richard devoted almost their whole lives to the Hundred Years' War, a conflict with France that really summed up the golden age of knighthood when kings and earls didn't just sit around in tents, directing things from afar, they fought in the thick of battle. The Hundred Years' War epitomised an era of loyalty and brotherhood on the battlefield. Tough military men who had each other's backs when it mattered. Tobias Capwell is an expert on medieval arms and armour. Toby, in the 14th century, were kings like Edward III and nobles like Richard FitzAlan really fighting in the middle of battle? The
4: whole foundation of medieval warrior culture was that the leaders had to lead from the front. It's all about the personal loyalty of warriors to their master. So if your leader isn't there, there's no point in anybody else going. It was expected that a king would fight in the front ranks with his men you can't stay behind you can't stay at home you cannot send young men to their deaths without going with them the reality for the noblemen for the Knights is that they don't do anything until the armies are this close
1: I really don't like being that close to that sword, which is no, pretty sharp
4: it, it, it sort of resonates with a kind of power, doesn't it, when you know it's something that can make your arms fall off. That's how male bonding happens. It's about going through strenuous, traumatic experiences together, where you think you might die, and then you all come home forever bonded closer together. And that's what the whole fabric of the medieval society, knightly culture, is based on.
1: All of Richard Fitzallen's loyal service to his king in the mid 1300s was spectacularly rewarded. He was even left in charge of England for two years while Edward III was abroad. And combined with the riches he gathered from victorious battles in France, Fitzalan, the Earl of Arundel, became almost unimaginably wealthy. In the 1370s, when he was an old man, Richard Fitzalan was said to have £30,000 in cash stored in a single tower, probably the keep, here at Arundel Castle. Now, today, that would be like having £10 million stuffed under your mattress. Obviously, all of that cold, hard cash is gone, but the signs of Fitzalan's war booty are still everywhere in the castle buildings. Just take a look at this private chapel in the castle grounds. Medieval nobles were obsessed with legacy and immortality. What's the use of having all that money, power and respect if you can't set it in stone to remind people that you were here? This stunning Fitzallan chapel was founded after Richard's death, using the wealth that he'd built up during a lifetime of royal service. Beginning with Fitzallan's grandson, virtually every one of the earl's successors is buried here in this chapel, and you're left in no doubt about how important they were, or at least how important they thought they were, It's almost an overwhelming space. It's not very different from the tombs of the great medieval kings at Westminster Abbey. But it's still incredible to think that all of this was built on the spoils of war. None of the grandeur brought to Arundel Castle would have been possible without the war booty plundered on foreign battlefields. But the biggest war was yet to come for the Earls of Arundel, because they were Catholic in an England that was about to become violently Protestant. They would have to fight for their very existence under the reign of Britain's most famous king, Henry VIII. Arundel Castle had been a seat of great wealth and power since the time of William the Conqueror. But in the 16th century, every ounce of that wealth and power came under threat because of King Henry VIII. In 1534, Henry set up the Protestant Church of England with himself as its head and separated from the Catholic Church of Rome. Anyone who failed to pledge allegiance to the new Church of England was in danger of incurring the King's wrath. Hundreds of Catholics were killed for defying Henry. But the Fitzalan Earls of Arundel remained true to the Catholic faith. Even given their high status, they were treading a very fine line. And today, the chapel at Arundel Castle still shows how the Fitzalans brazenly challenged the authority of the King and his new Protestant religion. This glass door looks pretty ordinary. In fact, it's anything but because it marks the division between a Church of England parish church on that side and the Catholic Chapel, the FitzAllen Chapel within Arundel Castle on this side. But it's not just rare, although it is rare, it's also very symbolic because in a way this tells you the whole story of the English Reformation, the time when Henry VIII ripped the English church away from the Church of Rome and ushered in a period of repression and persecution when your loyalty to your god and to your king was constantly under question. And if either was found wanting, you would meet your maker. In 1555, the Fitzallans joined forces with another of England's most powerful Catholic families. Lady Mary Fitzalan of Arundel married Thomas Howard, the 4th Duke of Norfolk. From then on, this new Catholic dynasty would be known as the fitzalan Howards, or sometimes simply the Howards. These statues represent the two families. On the one side we have the horse of the Fitzalans, and then over here is the lion representing the Howards. It's the Earls of Arundel and the Dukes of Norfolk. This was a marriage of title, of wealth and of power. This combined family now had two titles. They were the Earls of Arundel and the Dukes of Norfolk. But all that power and wealth was in jeopardy as long as their Catholic beliefs were at odds with England's official Protestant faith. Henry VIII's daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, had the fourth Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Howard, executed in 1572 for plotting against her. Then she had his son, Philip, locked up in the Tower of London for refusing to renounce his Catholic faith. The dynasty was suffering a disastrous fall from grace. Jesse, after the turmoil of Henry VIII's Reformation, this was a very dangerous time to be a big Catholic aristocratic family, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, it definitely was, and especially for the the Howards, who are the preeminent... Catholic family in the country.
1: The Howards had a very, very turbulent 16th century.
3: They really did, actually. For about four generations, you see them just being knocked over like Skittles. You have Thomas IV, Duke of Norfolk. He was caught up in a plot to replace Protestant Elizabeth I now um, on the throne of England with Catholic Mary Queen of Scots, her cousin. And then his son, Philip, Earl of Arundel, sent to the Tower of London for 10 years, and he died there of dysentery.
1: Why didn't they just keep their heads down?
3: Well, you'd think they they would, wouldn't you? But the fourth Duke of Norfolk, Thomas, he did, and he wrote this desperately, desperately sad last letter to his son, Philip, saying, Beware of blind papistry, as he put it, and beware of high degree. In other words, yeah, keep your head down, watch your back.
1: In a way, it's a miracle that this family actually survived and that Arundel Castle is still here today.
3: Yeah, it is, they, they their motto is "Sola virtus in victor, only virtue unconquered. There's that amazing self-belief, but there's also that Icarus quality. They always would sail a little bit too close to the sun, which is why you get these disgraces, but they would always rise up.
1: The union between the Howards and the Fitzalans of Arundel, which had promised so much, had instead been marred by calamity. In the space of four generations, Four family members had been imprisoned for treason, with two of them beheaded. And, of course, they lost everything, their titles and their castle, which reverted to Queen Elizabeth I. It all leads you to wonder, how on earth are the fitzalan Howards still at Arundel Castle today? How did they retain all their power and royal favour? They certainly didn't roll over and convert. They remain staunch Catholics to this day. The fate of the fitz Alan Howard dynasty rested on the next in line. Thomas was named after his grandfather, the recently beheaded fourth Duke of Norfolk. But he wasn't born in a castle, he was born in the shame and relative poverty of a humble village in Essex. You'd have to say that this young Thomas's prospects didn't look good. But when Queen Elizabeth died and James I came to the English throne in 1603, the fitzalan Howard family's fortunes changed dramatically. The new king, James I, was pretty well disposed towards the family. They'd supported his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, and they'd supported his own claim to the English throne. Now the king repaid their faith. Thomas was reinstated as Earl in 1604 and the Fitzalan Howards were back in Arundel Castle. Young Thomas was smart enough to know he needed to start from scratch to keep his head down steer clear of politics and try to restore the family name and fortune and he started in the very best way possible he married an incredibly wealthy woman. This is Thomas' wife, Alethea Talbot. She was the daughter of the Earl of Shrewsbury and she inherited huge estates across the north of England. Now, her wealth meant her husband could indulge his single great passion, which was art collecting. With the family back in the money and back in royal favour, under Charles I, Thomas acted as a government envoy traveling across Europe. He spent a lot of time in Antwerp and in Padua in Italy, and he liked what he saw. The art he collected came back here to Arundel Castle. Thomas the collector Earl was obviously very cultured, very sophisticated. I think he was very politically savvy as well. The reign of Charles I was a very turbulent time. It would end in the English Civil War. Actually, this wasn't a bad moment to be getting out of England on long art-collecting tours. I think there was more to it even than that. Considering what had happened to generation after generation of this family, amassing all of this art, this cultural splendor, was a way of restoring family pride. It was a way of saying, we're back and we're back greater than ever. By the time he died in 1646, Thomas Howard had amassed a vast array of art, literature, gems and jewellery. His library included priceless sketchbooks by the great Leonardo da Vinci. In his will, he stated he wanted the whole collection kept together. Sadly, that didn't happen. But the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford houses the Arundel marbles, Thomas's personal hoard of ancient European statues and carvings. Where in Europe did he go to get all these wonderful antiquities?
3: He travels to Rome and undertakes what are called excavations but what we actually think was that they weren't true excavations but there were some statues planted for him for his benefit to find which he then had to purchase and then bring back to england
1: could you give us an idea of the contribution of the collector earl to british art and british heritage in general
3: well he inspired um all the future collectors so when you travel around Britain today and you see these country houses full of these beautiful objects really we've got Arundel to thank for them
1: although much of his collection is now elsewhere recently the castle decided to commemorate Thomas the collector Earl with a specially designed garden to recognize his artistic taste and his legacy this used to be a car park His body is in the family tomb in the chapel, but his spirit is in this garden, which is a recreation of the formal gardens of the 17th century. Thomas Howard defined how this period in British history would be seen and remembered. The artists he encouraged went on to paint an entire generation of Britain's ruling class, most notably the Flemish master Anthony van Dyck whose work is all over the castle. But there's an irony there, because Van Dyck's probably most famous work is a portrait of King Charles I, the monarch who helped bring about the downfall of Arundel Castle. In 1642, civil war broke out, dividing Britain. The Royalists supported Charles I and his right to rule his country as he pleased. The Parliamentarians, known as Roundheads, challenged the authority of the King. Arundel Castle, which had become more of an art gallery than a fortress, was suddenly called back into action. But at the outbreak of the Civil War, the Collector Earl Thomas Howard was abroad, his health failing. He would never see his beloved castle again. Thomas died in Italy as civil war raged across England and engulfed Arundel. In December 1643, Arundel Castle was held by royalist forces loyal to Charles I. But outside the walls, a huge parliamentarian army was gathering, maybe 10,000 strong. They battered the castle for more than two weeks until eventually, on the 6th of January 1644, it surrendered. The castle and the chapel were badly damaged, but ultimately the reason the siege had succeeded was that they'd run out of water. The men inside were dying of thirst. But there was worse to come. After the Roundheads won the war and chopped Charles I's head off, they set about slighting British castles, tearing down or dynamiting their walls and towers to make sure they could never be used for military defence again some of the greatest castles in britain were ruined and arundel was no exception arundel was a shadow of the palatial fortress it had been for so many centuries but its enemies had failed to destroy this place for good in fact they'd left the foundations for another golden age in the castle's history arundel was about to be reborn in the image of the perfect castle A castle fit for a queen, or at least for a queen's visit. And that was just as well, because Queen Victoria was coming to stay. By the end of the 17th century, the once mighty Arundel Castle lay in ruins. But it was about to be returned to its former grandeur. The rich and powerful family who owned it, the Fitzalan Howards, held two titles. They were Earls of Arundel and Dukes of Norfolk. In 1786, Charles Howard became the Earl of Arundel and set about making some changes. An extravagant socialite, he saw Arundel as a potential pleasure palace and he began making major renovations before taking up residence. Along with Arundel, Charles also inherited the title of 11th Duke of Norfolk. The castle, like the Duke, was going to be big, brash, and impressive. The 11th Duke was a rambunctious character. He loved to entertain and to hold parties here at the castle. He was also a member of London's infamous Beefsteak Club, dedicated to the principles of liberal prosperity. Their motto was beef and liberty, but there was a fair amount of wine involved as well. He was nicknamed the Drunken Duke or the Dirty Duke. He had such an aversion to soap and water that his servants had to wait until he'd passed out in a stupor before stripping him off and giving him a wash. His personal life was predictably chaotic and unconventional. His first wife died in childbirth and his second was certified insane And had to be confined for almost 50 years leaving the duke to make his way through a succession of mistresses and father at least six illegitimate children charles wasn't just flamboyant he was fashionable too and he began remodeling and rebuilding arundel castle according to the tastes of the day this picture gallery was totally redesigned so were rooms across the castle and ornate new wings were added in the Gothic Revival style. Today, you'd call that retro. It was harking back to an earlier, greater period in time. In this case, the imagined romantic English Middle Ages. But at the turn of the 19th century, that was the height of hipster cool. Charles' ambition was to make his castle a place to be seen. By 1797, he was estimated to have spent £200,000 on the castle, and by the time he died, that had risen to £600,000, or about £40 million in today's terms. Perhaps because of those costs, he also decided to do something incredibly modern for the time. He started letting in paying tourists. Social historian Ruth Goodman explains how Arundel Castle was at the forefront of the 19th century obsession with the past. So, Ruth, in the 19th century, that was really the birth of tourism at the castle, wasn't it?
5: Absolutely. I mean, I think when you look around this place, it's like a film set, isn't it? And that was very much the purpose. People were rediscovering the past again. There was a certain fantasy element yeah. to enjoying the past.
1: When you look around the castle today, you see a lot of tourists.
5: Arundel is right at the forefront of that. Starting to collect tickets, thank you very much, yeah. for coming to see our marvellous recreated Gothic home.
1: Ruth, I love the story of the dirty Duke who was so filthy that his staff <laughs> waited till he was blind drunk and passed <laughs> out before they washed him.
5: It was a bit extreme, but it was an age in which it was really quite difficult to be clean.
1: So what would you use to get rid of the stench well, I mean the, of the age?
5: This is the perfume of the Victorian age, which is a mixture of lemon and bergamot.
1: Very simple ingredients. Very
5: simple ingredients, but the two mixed together. Mm-hmm.
1: But very fresh.
5: This, this scent yeah. was the scent of Victoria and her court. I feel like really I don't
1: need it. to wash this hand today?
5: <laughs> and it carries. There's no doubt it mm. carries. This one here... This is what's a gentleman's this? hair product. Quite a light one, there's hardly any scent to that mm. at all. Have a go? Mm, go for it. You don't you very much, just a little tiny bit on your fingers.
1: OK, there we go.
5: Yeah. Quite
1: light. Bit of, sort of, shine to it, I imagine. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. What, what's in it?
5: Well, all sorts of things. If you were the king, then it might actually be based upon bear fat.
1: Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> if I just put bare fat in my hair? No,
5: you haven't. Most people couldn't afford bare fat. Good. You'd be glad. You've just got lard. Oh. <laughs> Good. Lard, oh. almond oil, a little bit of rose water, a bit of vodka.
1: I mean, that's genuinely amazing because it sounds disgusting, but it is really effective.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the modern products are not so dissimilar.
1: It all goes back to the Victorian time.
5: And it all goes back to the Victorian times. Okay?
1: Those clever Victorians. The restoration work at Arundel, started by Charles the Dirty Duke, was completed by the 13th Duke, Henry, during the reign of Queen Victoria. And in 1844, Arundel was given two years' notice that the Queen and her husband, Prince Albert, were coming to stay. So, Ruth, we're living in Arundel Castle, let's say, and we get word that Queen Victoria is coming to stay, presumably... This panic station.
5: This vast army, this huge machine has to sort of ratchet up into action. Because you, you need everything to be utterly ready. I mean, you've got to produce food fit for a queen. And you've got to be able to entertain night after night after night. All the flowers to, to decorate the rooms, to produce a beautiful smell. And then you're going to have to have stacks of clean linen. This is a vast effort.
1: The castle has to be looking its absolute best, absolute right? Absolute uh, best. No matter what the reality is, actually, <laughs> it takes, shove it all under the carpet exactly, and, get it and, looking and it Exactly, and takes good. a
5: huge number of people to do that. All these things are very labour-intensive. There aren't any sort of mechanised quick cheats. It's all about people, so you'd be pulling in extra labour from the towns and villages around to just get it going.
1: Victoria's visit was a great success. She stayed for three days. There were fireworks, conjurers, Ethiopian singers and lots of dancing. She said Arundel reminded her of her own castle at Windsor. This ringing royal endorsement encouraged successive generations of dukes to keep the process going and drag Arundel right into the 20th century. It would go on to become one of the very first houses in England to have electric lights, service lifts and central heating. What if it's quite light and... Even airy and certainly comfortable here today, but it wouldn't have been like this in the 19th century, would it?
5: No, no, it wouldn't to be fair to Arundel. They were one of the first castles to install electricity and central heating and gives us this feeling that we've got today. But for most of the Victorian period and in most castles, you've got to think of it without the lights. You've got to think of it without the heating. I mean, they're built of stone, huge spaces. Fundamentally, life in a castle would be pretty uncomfortable. Cold, dark, Even if it looks nice in pictures.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, Ruth, this room is pretty dazzling. We've got the bed Queen Victoria slept in. This is the actual one. This is the actual bed that she and Albert slept in. Lovely crest above it. And it looks dazzling (laughs) and beautiful and all this. Another thing the castle didn't have, even in the rooms prepared for the queen, was running water. So, this looks like (laughs) rather a smart drinks table.
5: Yeah, except this is the bathroom. Mm, it's not even a separate room. A
1: chamber pot. A chamber pot. The famous chamber pot, and this is <laughs> this is the toilet.
5: That is the Never toilet. Never
1: mind a flush or a cistern. No, 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 no. This no, is no, it.
5: No. That's it. And and everywhere you went, I mean Buckingham Palace, the same. There was no running water at this date within people's houses, even at the very top of society. Even the Queen is busily having to cope with a chamber pot. In some ways, I
1: find this chamber pot quite reassuring and, and even quite comforting, because even if you're the Queen, even, even if you're Queen Victoria, even you know, queen victoria greatest monarch in the world, when it comes down to it, you still need one of these, yeah. just like everybody else. Yeah. Today the castle is very much a home, as well as a tourist attraction, and it does have running water. The present Duke, Edward FitzAlan Howard, is the 18th Duke of Norfolk and the 29th Earl of Arundel but he doesn't walk backwards anymore at the state opening of Parliament. It was the tradition in order to show respect, but the Queen herself asked for tradition to change because she worried the Duke might trip over and hurt himself. Arundel Castle is still home to the most prestigious peer in the land who holds the oldest earldom in the entire country and even has his own cricket team. Arundel Castle really is about as English as it gets. From William the Conqueror to the Queen, from invasion to reformation to revolution. Now it's all hidden beneath this perfectly civilized genteel veneer, but scratch the surface and you find a story of loyalty, tenacity, and single-mindedness which has placed Arundel Castle at the heart of Britain's stormy history.
2: fascinating stuff at 10 the best of bad TV takes aim at the noughties the joys and horrors of balmy broadcasts featuring Edwina Curry and who's having a pop at Danny Dyer brand new next though we're about to set sail for Monte Carlo on the world's most luxurious cruise ship if it's possible to float with this much marble on board stick around